As former First Lady Michelle Obama once said, communities and countries, and ultimately the world, are only as strong as the health of their women. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated gender inequities and has shifted vital resources away from many violence against women and girls programs in the community. This reality has a potential of eroding progress made to achieve the United Nations' fifth sustainable development goal, which is to achieve gender equality and empower all women and girls. In this episode, we'll be highlighting the shadow pandemic, gender-based violence. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. My name is Gordon, your host for this episode, and I'm here with co-hosts Ben, Linda, and a special guest who will be introduced in a moment. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. Please note that this episode will discuss issues around violence and trauma and may contain sensitive or triggering content for some people. If you or someone you know has been impacted by violence of any kind, know that you are not alone. Please use your discretion when listening to this content and connect to the appropriate supports as needed. For our listeners in Canada, you can visit endingviolencecanada.org slash help or use the other resources in the show notes. Lindsay Belvedere is a senior policy advisor with the Government of Alberta. She has a Bachelor of Science in Health Sciences from Simon Fraser University. She also graduated from Brigham Young University in 2018 and has a Master of Public Health with a focus on health promotion and global health. She's temporarily working with the public health management team at the COVID-19 Emergency Operations Center at Alberta Health. Her permanent position that she will return to in May is the Violence Against Women and Girls Unit at Alberta Culture, Multiculturalism, and Status of Women. Lindsay is keenly interested in understanding gender-based violence as a public health issue and gender as a social determinant of health and has worked on these issues in Canada, India, and Georgia. Please welcome to the Public Health Insight Podcast, Lindsay. Thank you. I'm so excited welcome. to be here. We're excited to Thank you. We're glad, we're glad that you're here too. Tell us a little bit about how you developed your passion for addressing issues around um, gender equity and gender-based violence. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess it started, uh, so I have some personal experience um, in my background um, with gender-based violence. Um, but it didn't really all, I guess, come together until uh, about 10 years ago. I went to India um, to do an internship with a wonderful organization called the Destiny Reflection Foundation uh, based out of Kolkata, India. And they work uh, locally there with human trafficking survivors and those at risk of sexual exploitation. And it was through that experience that I really came to understand uh, gender uh, gender inequality as a social determinant of health and what the possible consequences of that could be. Um, so in the situation I was in, it was human trafficking and sexual exploitation. Um, and then this, uh, I guess this interest that I found while I was in India has been something that I've carried forward um, for the last 10 years. And, um, you know, it, doing my master's degree, like every project that I had the opportunity to choose the topic, like it was always something mm. related to um, gender inequality or gender-based violence. Um, and same with my practicum that I did in Tbilisi, Georgia. I was there uh, working with their Department of 
gender equality um, and part of my role was uh, looking at research related to gender-based violence in the country there. Um, and then I've been fortunate enough to eventually make my way to having a position with the government of Alberta where I'm also working on those issues. So this is, yeah, been something that I've been keenly interested in, I guess, for the last 10 years and being able to combine my personal experience and my mm-hmm. work and academic experience all together. This has brought me to where I am at the moment. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. I believe there's many different types of or forms of um, gender-based violence and, and you know violence against women and girls um, so uh, the first place to start is with some definitions so what is gender-based violence and are there any different types of gender-based violence yeah for sure um, so gender-based violence is violence that is committed against someone based on their gender identity gender expression or perceived gender and in Canada this most commonly manifests as uh, either family or domestic violence or sexual violence. Mm. And most often it is violence that is perpetrated by males against females, uh, though it can manifest between people of all genders and uh, those in all types of relationships. Um, And maybe I will just say most of my experience has been um, working uh, on issues related to violence against women and girls specifically. Mm -hmm. So that is where I'm coming from. Um, But I do recognize that Um, people of all genders do experience gender-based violence Um, and uh, and that is a really important issue that also needs to be addressed Um, so I guess maybe I'll just go ahead and just define really quickly um, sexual violence and family violence since Mm. those are the two most common types of violence in Canada and probably um, in a Canadian context what is the most relevant Mm -hmm. Uh, so Sexual violence or sexual abuse uh, is an act committed against someone's sexual integrity uh, without that person's freely given consent. Uh, It can be physical or non-contact, and it affects people of all ages and genders, um, and the person committing the act could be a known person or a stranger. Um, And in Canada, this is something that is against both civil and criminal law. Uh, And so sexual violence is an umbrella term. Uh, but within that, that can include uh, sexual assault, sexual harassment, um, and sexual exploitation. Mm. And then uh, family violence. So family violence or domestic violence, those ch- terms are used fairly interchangeably, mm. um, is any use of physical or sexual force, actual or threatened within a relationship. Uh, it's something that can happen many times within a relationship or just once. Um, and usually happens through the use of assault or controlling behavior. And uh, this includes uh, violence between intimate partners, uh, dating violence, elder abuse, and it also violence that can happen between parents and children and siblings mm. or extended family members. Um, and then maybe one other thing I'll mention is I guess the most extreme manifestation of uh, violence against women is femicide. Um, which is defined as the killing of one or, of females, primarily by males, because they are female. Mm. Um, so that is something that is an issue globally as well as in Canada. Adding on to that, are there other types of violence, uh, you know, emotional and economic? I know they might fill into those umbrella terms that you mentioned before, but I, I wonder if you could just comment on the nuance between that. So economic, emotional violence, and maybe I would also add um, financial violence to that. Mm. Um, those are things that are usually talked about within the realm of family or domestic violence. Um, 
However, I know for most people, when you think like domestic violence, any type of abuse, you usually immediately go right to the physical mm-hmm. abuse, right? That's the thing that people think of. Right, right. Um, but emotional abuse, controlling behavior, um, you know, limit limiting one's uh, economic opportunity, the ability for one to like, travel freely, um, and also financial abuse. So, you know, restricting access to finances or dictating how finances might be spent. Um, those are all uh, can be found within um, family or domestic violence in Canada. Um, and the, I would say the biggest one that we um i guess there's a big movement right now to get this recognized in canada is coercive control Mm. um so controlling of one person by another in a coercive manner um either through manipulation or emotional abuse but it's not necessarily um something that manifests physically uh and uh, i know that that is something that uh, has recently been added to Canada's Divorce Act as um, grounds for divorce. And it's something that um, advocates across Canada are trying to get, um, raise more awareness about and become a more recognized um, form of uh, family violence. So it almost sounds then like there's like an, an inherent power imbalance associated with all of those. And you mentioned men and boys being... Um, overrepresented in terms of the perpetrators um, committing these acts of violence and then consequently um, we talk about gender-based violence and you know you mentioned your focus on violence against women and girls but men are also disproportionately more likely to commit violence against other men and boys so even men or boys are disproportionately impacted by violence committed by men and boys so because of that reason there has to be a reframing of um, violence against women and girls or even gender-based violence as like that's a woman thing as to it is men problem because of those realities i have a couple of thoughts so mm-hmm. um the association of alberta sexual assault services uh, mm-hmm. recently conducted a prevalence study uh, in alberta of about the prevalence of sexual violence and abuse in the province mm-hmm. and based on their results they estimate that 1.8 million albertans out of i think there's only 4.2 million people in alberta so almost 50 percent of the population has experienced sexual violence or abuse in one form or another at some point throughout their lives um, and from that they think that uh two and three women and one in three men have been victims have experienced that so it's definitely an issue that uh, impacts men um as well as women and it's not it's not something that we should ignore (laughs) right um and and i guess along with that i know um uh this is something that is being addressed uh by the calgary women's emergency shelter um they have done a lot of work recently to look at how uh men seek help they have a men's counseling program um for men um either male victims but also male perpetrators of violence Mm. to work with them um and also looking at how men seek help because it turns out um and i i don't know a lot of the details about this but it does turn out that male help seeking behavior is typically different than female in terms of even like the types of things you would google to try and Mm. seek help and unfortunately um even now like there aren't a lot of resources available that are specifically targeted towards men um so that is something that uh that's a gap that definitely needs to be worked on Mm -hmm. 
yeah thanks for thanks for acknowledging that i think though at the end of the day women are women and girls are disproportionately effect impacted by violence um and then the key issue there is the one commonality in whether it's men and boys or um, women and girls is that men are more likely to be the perpetrators of violence and hence which we'll get into it later um those i know you had you know you wanted to talk a little bit about some of those primary prevention and you can't talk about primary prevention without bringing the men and the boys in into it considering that's the reality of the situation so yeah, yeah thanks for i appreciate you um shedding some light light on that so you talked a little bit about even from alberta's perspective um you know in terms of experiencing violence um the, the prevalence so but from a canadian-wide perspective do we know much about the prevalence of gender-based violence or other different forms of violence yes <laughs> i mean the the data is uh I guess we should consider all the data underreported, and I'll get into why. Mm. Um, so there was a survey done by Statistics Canada that was released in uh, December of 2019 that estimated that uh, 39% of women and 35% of men aged 15 or older in Canada, um, or more than 11 million Canadians, have reported experiencing at least one incident of physical or sexual assault uh, since the age of 15. Um, and in Canada, most of the data we have uh, is around police reported rates of violence. Um, so the police reported rate of family violence in Canada is 239 per 100,000. Um, of intimate partner violence is 313 per 100,000. And of sexual violence is 62 per 100,000. And that's based on the most recent data that we have. Um, however, uh, what we know, at least in the sphere of sexual violence, we know that 75 or 95% of sexual assaults are never reported to mm. police. Um, and so, you you know, even though we say there's, you know, 62 incidents per 100,000 people in our general Canadian population, um, we know that is a, like significantly underestimating um, the actual rate of sexual violence happening in the country. Um, and the same thing goes for um, in intimate partner or family violence. Uh, I found one article that talked about how in Edmonton, they estimate that 70% of intimate partner violence incidents are never reported. Um, and I imagine that is similar across the country. Um, and then also, I guess it's important to look at some regional differences and again this data is all police reported data um, but rates of gender-based violence are generally higher in the territories as well as the prairie right. provinces mm. you, you mentioned too like you're you're aware of some of those barriers to reporting it or some hesitations that exist to um, that contribute to those low reporting numbers yeah um yeah i can talk about that <laughs> um so uh, as far as particularly sexual violence, um, there some of the barriers that exist in reporting just have to do with um, our criminal justice system and mm. the general uh, tendency for folks to not believe people that are reporting sexual violence, um, which we know, another thing that we know is that the rates of false reports for sexual violence are no different than the rate of false reporting for any other crime, robbery, carjacking, whatever it might be, the rates of false reporting for sexual violence are consistent with those rates. Mm -hmm. And so there is definitely an idea in society that, you know, women are reporting sexual violence to be mm -hmm. 
spiteful or, you know, just or that they might be lying or whatever it might be. Um, but we know that statistically that is untrue. Um, and that when a case of sexual violence is reported, like more than likely it happened and it, it is a true report and we should believe them. And so just the fact that people aren't believed is a big thing that uh, keeps people from reporting in the first place. Um, and then I guess another thing would be just the way that folks are treated through the criminal justice process. Um, so this is something that's being worked on, but historically the reporting process and the court process has not been trauma-informed and mm -hmm. many victims report feeling re-traumatized through the process, whether it be through having to retell their story multiple times or, um, you know, in court having to be in the same room with perpetrator and having to tell their story there. Um, and also we know that trauma can impact um, people's memories. And so there might be inconsistencies in the way that a woman tells her story multiple times. And so that can be justification for people to think that she is being untruthful, even though she most likely is not being untruthful. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a lot of work that needs to be done with um, are like police officers and judges to make sure they understand um, one that they should be believing women and two the way that trauma impacts memory and the way their stories might be told and then ensuring that the whole criminal justice process is not re-traumatizing folks and so if we can make that whole process better um, then hopefully more women will feel comfortable coming forward. And we're starting to see that, you know, over the last couple of years with the Me Too movement, like that has been a big thing. Like women are starting to speak out and we're starting to realize, you know, truly how pervasive the problem is. It's a problem that's always been there, but it's starting to get out into the open. And so the more we talk about it, but the more we can make it exper an experience that can be talked about that people believe, then you know, the more likely people are going to um, be willing to come forward. I'm glad you brought up the point about the justice system and how its current infrastructure doesn't really support what's happening. And I was wondering, and you may not know the answer to this, and that's fine, is that do you know of any changes happening within policies or whatnot to make that whole process a lot more um, beneficial to the survivor? There was a bill, previously Bill C-5, um, that was passed in the House of Commons in November. Um, and this bill would mandate, mandate uh, training for uh, federal judges on sexual assault law. Um, and this was something that had been introduced a couple of years ago and never made it out of the, it was passed by the House of Commons and never made it out of the Canadian Senate before um, before the last election, I think. And so this was something, it was reintroduced, it was passed again, it had full support of, I think, every party um, to mandate training of um, judges on sexual assault law. Um, and I think, you know, there have been cases in Canada um, where, like, where, uh, you know, there was victim blaming that happened by the judge that mm. they were not treated with mm -hmm. dignity in the way that they should have been. And so mm -hmm. this is, you know, one thing that can be done at the policy level. Um, mm. Yeah. And hopefully that can, that will trickle down to like the provincial level um, and into the municipalities. Another thing that I saw when preparing for this was how um, newcomer and immigrant 
communities are also at a disproportionate um, risk of being impacted by gender-based violence. And I thought it was interesting when we were talking about um, underreporting. Uh, we know that this community already has, you know, differences in help-seeking behaviors due to things like language barriers, or even, you know, if your if your stay in Canada is not yet secure, you don't want to, you know, get involved with the justice system or cause any attention to be drawn to yourself. And so I think that's culture. something totally culture. And I think that's something that we don't speak about enough when it comes to newcomer and immigrant communities, because gender-based violence is very real universally, but mm. it's, it's often ignored within these communities because we don't have culturally relevant services for people to reach yeah. out to. I, I just want to affirm that like everything you've said is true <laughs> mm. um, and that there is a gap in um, services for specific communities um, that is needed. Um, and I think also, you know, we need to consider that not everyone is going to want to take a criminal justice response to um, to particularly family violence. Um, and if we can look at, you know, restorative justice approaches and like getting folks help that want help, um, you know, that's also something that we need to look at. And I think it's particularly relevant for um, certain cultural communities to take that approach. Absolutely. And adding on to that, I think um, um, a lot of what I've seen personally is that, you know, especially in a culture that has arranged marriages or their sponsorship programs where the person comes from either Sri Lanka or India to Canada, and then the person sponsoring that, um, their wife or their fiance has a lot of control over what resources that she may access. And dynamic. exactly that power dynamic is huge and it's a huge disparity. And what I've noticed as well is that the criminal justice may not be involved in trying to, uh, you know, mediate this uh, gender-based violence, but the family will get involved and make it their own personal issue and make it um, their own agenda, have their own agendas come out and they're not trained to do this or may they, they may have something underlying in plan. So it's, it just perpetuates itself almost with this, again, the, the different definitions of family violence or domestic violence that we see. And there's often a lot of, like not to stigmatize any culture, so from my personal experience, there's often a lot of um, emphasis on keeping it within the family. You don't want to, you know, mm. bring shame or whatever. So you don't talk about it. You don't seek help. You deal with it internally. And often, like Ben, you mentioned, often family members aren't trained in how to respond to gender-based violence. So it can perpetuate this more as opposed to um, being a benefit. Mm -hmm. And you talk about just... Even intergenerationally, um, there is a lot of learned behavior that can be passed down from generation to generation, especially if a son is used to seeing, you know, his mother abused and, you know, and then normalizes that behavior and then that perpetuates the cycle as well. But even just um, going back, touching on the point of culture and race as well, we've been seeing what's been happening a lot with, you know, black men getting killed. Um, sometimes those calls are related to domestic violence and there might be some hesitancy there on the part of the woman being abused knowing that interactions with law enforcement um, disproportionately have negative health outcomes in terms of black men so instead of looking out for perhaps to their own safety and health as um, they would have the right to do um, they might be some other factors there that puts up barriers for them doing what's best for them um mm -hmm. you know so i think that's 
that's something that we're seeing, um, especially lately as well. I think that's also why it's important that we do provide options that aren't just about picking up the phone and calling the police. Right. Um, and, you know, we do have, there are helplines available um, that offer services in multiple languages. Um, is it, you know, is one thing. Um, so I, I think, you know, we just need to think about alternative approaches, kind of like what I said earlier. Um, mm. It doesn't have to always involve a criminal justice response. There are a lot of groups that are um, have a dis- disproportionate risk of experiencing intimate partner violence or gender-based violence that we haven't touched on. Um, like, for example, when we look at um, Indigenous communities, for example, we we hear that about the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, that, and it's often something that you can choose to ignore if you don't, if you're not aware. And so there are a lot of people who don't know about this. Or even when we look at, um, like sex workers, for example, or, um, within like trans and gender queer communities. And so like, just to echo Lindsay, what you have said, having services that are relevant to the needs of each community, because people may not want to always go through law enforcement or Gordon. There may be issues that prevent people from going towards law enforcement. So I think definitely, when we get to more policy and things like that, um, having services that are tailored to the needs of each community. Absolutely. And just to to put everything into context here, um, gender-based violence um, outside of just the act of the violence itself and, you know, inflicting violence, you know, can cause injury and stuff, immediate injury. There's also long, longer term consequences of being subject to um, gender-based violence. So I was wondering if we could touch on um, some of those. I know one alarming stat that I saw, you know, by the Canadian Women's Foundation was that more than 6,000 women and children sleep in shelters on any given night uh, because it's not safe at home. 6,000 women and children every night. Um, and I guess the thing I'll say about that is that um, uh, we know that our, our shelter system is overburdened and that shelters are frequently turning people away because they can't, um, they don't have the capacity to take more people in. And so uh, I think also we can look at that as probably an underreported mm. number, um, a number that is smaller than the actual need uh, for shelter mm-hmm. services. Absolutely. And then the, there's a longer term mental health consequences as well. And I noticed like, you know, there's, there's a term violence against women but then there's also violence against women and girls or women and children and we have to think on you know there's long-term impacts on the mother or the mm-hmm. caregiver and then the child themselves being witness to that i think that's mm. um that's why you know when i saw that number there about canadians collectively spending um upwards of seven billion to deal with the aftermath of spousal violence alone it, it makes complete sense like it's a it, it's a big number but when you consider all the the downstream effects of families going through um, violence over and over it's it it you know it has a big impact on our societal functioning so for sure and a lot of like trauma literature talks about adverse childhood experiences and how experiencing those as a as a young person leads to more health conditions as an adult and so i think even just from a purely financial incentive, we want to look at what governments listen to. There's mm-hmm. so much um, incentive to address gender-based violence early on, so that it doesn't, you know, continue. 
Yeah, what was the statistic in the literature that said like children who witness violence in the home are mm-hmm. twice as likely twice to away. have psychiatric disorders later yeah. in life? Yeah. You've just heard part one of Gordon, Ben, and Linda's conversation with Lindsay Belvedere, a senior policy advisor, about the different types of gender-based violence, the burden on women and girls in Canada, and why she is passionate about addressing this public health issue. Tune into the next episode for the second half of the conversation, where they talk about the levels of prevention for gender-based violence, the impact of COVID-19, and how social policies can help promote gender equality. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make public health viral.